welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Beer was an important ingredient in the commercial agenda of our colonial past. European nations seeking to expand into the New World deployed thousands of transatlantic ships propelled by the wind, and the crewmen sailing those vessels were fueled by copious amounts of beer. Details of brewing activity in early Charleston are now exceedingly scarce, but archival evidence related to Captain George Anson's tenure on the Carolina Station during the 1720s and 1730s provides a model for reimagining both the volume and the ingredients used at South Carolina's earliest known commercial-scale brewery. Beer was not a luxury or recreational beverage in colonial-era Charleston. On land, water drawn from wells and rivers in the low country of South Carolina often tasted bad and contained harmful impurities. At sea, water stored in wooden barrels quickly turned green and spoiled. Before the advent of rudimentary water purification systems, people of all ages and social classes drank fermented or distilled beverages on a regular basis. Most consumers drank alcoholic beverages just to survive, not to get drunk. On land, people drank weak beer, commonly called table beer or small beer, that was either purchased or brewed at home. If beer was not available, they could mix fresh water with alcoholic spirits. For mariners at sea, where supplies of potable water were always limited, beer was the officially designated beverage of choice. The regular consumption of beer by seamen in the British Navy was a long-established fact of life at sea during the Age of Sail. Mariners of old knew that strong beer with a higher alcohol content than table beer can last for months and is well-suited to long oceanic voyages. The nutritional value of beer also contributed to the high-calorie diet afforded to hard-working seamen of distant centuries. England's Royal Navy began prescribing the daily and weekly diet of sailors for contractual purposes in 1677, at which time each sailor was to receive one gallon of beer every day of the week. Ships embarking on foreign voyages, that is, to the distant colonies, were allowed to substitute this beer ration with a pint of wine or a half pint of brandy, rum, or arrack when a sufficient volume of beer was not available. Following the example set by the Royal Navy, privately owned merchant vessels served beer to their crewmen in the same proportion as the king's ships, and likewise substituted wine or rum whenever beer was not available. Despite the importance of beer in maritime business, little is known about brewing in early Charleston, the principal port and capital of colonial South Carolina. For a variety of reasons, the production of beer on a commercial scale in Charleston lagged behind that of other port communities in North America. The subtropical climate of the South Carolina Lowcountry is suited to the cultivation of a variety of crops, but the labor of the earliest settlers and enslaved Africans focused on a different sort of harvest. Beginning in the 1670s, the colony's first industry was supplying wood products to West Indian plantations, including timber for houses and sugarcane crushing windmills and barrel staves to create containers for transporting sugar products. 
A secondary industry commencing in the late 17th century was the large-scale raising of beef, cattle, and hogs, the flesh of which was salted, packed in barrels, and shipped to other colonies. Such exports to the English Caribbean fueled reciprocal imports of copious quantities of sugar, rum, and treacle, or molasses, into colonial-era Charleston. Early South Carolinians raised provision crops for their own consumption, but did not enlarge their labors and acreage into the realm of commercial-scale agriculture until the 1690s. Rather than compete with northern farmers, who were already producing large volumes of traditional grains like barley and wheat, low country planters elected to pursue crops like rice and later indigo and cotton that enjoyed far less competition within British markets. Consequently, early South Carolinians were obliged to import wheat for baking bread and barley for brewing beer, but the volume, regularity of supply, and uses of such imports remain unclear. In 1711, for example, a poor woman residing in Charleston reported to her family in England that she often drank foul water because, quote, we cannot afford wine and there is no beer but what is made of treacle, end quote. Mariners visiting the port of Charleston in the decades after the founding of South Carolina must have drunk Madeira wine or watered-down rum or beer imported from elsewhere. As the town matured and ship traffic through the port increased during the first quarter of the 18th century, however, local entrepreneurs began investing in the creation of brewing facilities to supply the growing market. That incentive increased in the year 1720 when the British Admiralty established a permanent post in Charleston for a warship assigned to guard the coastline of South Carolina. After receiving numerous complaints about piratical vessels disturbing the ship traffic flowing in and out of the port of Charleston in 1718, the Lords of the Admiralty commissioned HMS Flamborough in 1719 to proceed to South Carolina. The 20-gun, 6th-rate frigate arrived in Charleston in May 1720 and became the first in a long succession of British warships assigned to protect what became known as the Carolina Station, as I described in episode number 148. The Flamborough's complement of 130 sailors certainly increased the local population of thirsty mariners, but the ship also introduced to Charleston the Royal Navy's contracting bureaucracy that guaranteed the local purchase of approximately 46,000 gallons of beer each year. If the town did not host a resident brewer capable of producing that volume of beer before 1720, market forces likely inspired someone to invest in the necessary facilities soon after the arrival of the Flamborough. Whether the men aboard HMS Flamborough drank wine, rum, or malted beer produced locally or imported from beyond South Carolina is a question not answered by the paucity of surviving records of the early 1720s. A small clue to this mystery appears in the logbook of Daniel Montill, the sailing master of HMS Blandford, which arrived in the summer of 1721 to relieve the Flamborough. The following summer, the Blanford returned from a brief cruise along the coastline and moored in Charleston Harbor abreast Craven Bastion, the present site of the U.S. Customs House. 
On the 23rd of July, 1722, Montill recorded in his log that he had, quote, sent ashore a sail to make a tent for to brew beer, end quote. This phrase suggests that the town still lacked the brewing infrastructure to produce the requisite volume, a defect that compelled thirsty sailors to brew their own supply in a temporary facility using whatever ingredients were at hand. Under the command of Captain George Anson, HMS Scarborough departed from London in the spring of 1724 with a total of 130 men and a modest supply of English beer. The 20-gun warship paused briefly at the island of Madeira that May to purchase a large volume of fortified wine per orders from the Lords of the Admiralty and began serving it to the sailors in lieu of beer before reaching South Carolina in mid-July. An indeterminate quantity of, quote-unquote, some beer came aboard immediately after the Scarborough anchored in Charleston Harbor, but the seamen apparently continued to drink Madeira wine for several more months. At the same time, the Blandford received an unspecified quantity of beer before departing from Charleston and sailing home to England in September. Beginning in late November 1724 and continuing on a roughly quarterly schedule over the next several years, the Scarborough periodically received large volumes of beer from unknown suppliers in Charleston. Between the 28th of November and the 5th of December 1724, for example, the ship received 45 large wooden containers called tons, each containing 252 gallons, and two smaller hogshead, each containing 63 gallons, comprising a total of 11,466 wine gallons of beer. That volume was apparently sufficient to supply the ship with a required daily ration for one quarter of a year. Similar volumes came aboard in subsequent quarters and continued to do so for the duration of Anson's nine-year tenure on the Carolina Station, from 1724 to May of 1735, during which time he commanded three warships in succession. Aboard HMS Squirrel in 1732-33, for example, he received several quarterly supplies of 90 butts, each containing 126 gallons, comprising this same total volume of 11,466 wine gallons of beer for 130 men. After the ship's complement was increased to 140 men in 1734-35, however, the quarterly supply increased to 99 butts, or 12,474 wine gallons of beer. From where did Captain Anson get this large and very specific volume of beer, approximately 46,000 gallons of beer each year, during his tenure in Charleston? Unfortunately, the historical paper trail leading to the source of this beer has been obscured by the nature of the procurement system in use during the captain's era. To supply various species of comestibles, like beer, bread, beef, etc., to His Majesty's ships around the world, the victualling commissioners of the British Navy negotiated contracts with a number of commercial agents based in London. Those London agents, in turn, communicated with subcontracting merchants in distant ports like Charleston, who then negotiated with a number of local suppliers to deliver the required victuals to the local station ship. 
robust financial records of these several levels of subcontracting do not survive, which fact frustrates modern efforts to determine the source of the beer aboard Anson's ships. For approximately half of George Anson's nine-year tenure in Charleston, it is possible that the beer consumed aboard his ships was produced by agents in his employment at a brewery located on his property. Captain Anson purchased a suburban plantation called the Bowling Green, now Ansonboro, from former ship captain Thomas Gadsden in late March 1727. By the early 1730s, that property, located just a stone's throw north of Colonial Charlestown, included two beer-related enterprises, a public house or tavern called the Bowling Green House, which once stood at or near the northeast corner of modern society and King Streets, and a brewery on a half-acre lot at what is now the southeast corner of society and Anson Streets. The date of the brewery's construction is unclear, but a newspaper report of an attempted burglary at the site in June 1735, three weeks after Anson's departure, demonstrates that the brewery was operating under the care of an unidentified resident brewer during and after the captain's tenure in South Carolina. The facility might have commenced production many years earlier under the auspices of Thomas Gadsden, who purchased the property in 1720, or his predecessor at the site, the prosperous Huguenot merchant Isaac Mazik. While Commodore Anson was sailing in the Pacific Ocean in the summer of 1742, for example, one of his agents in Charleston advertised the sale of, quote, two large copper vessels fit for brewing and lately used at Commodore Anson's old brew house, end quote. Alternatively, the facility might have commenced production around the year 1723, after David Montill's experience of brewing beer under a tent in 1722 and before the large delivery of beer to the Scarborough in 1724. The later dissolution of Anson's Brewery provides additional evidence of its commercial character. In August 1745, the Transatlantic Merchant Partnership of Thomas and Richard Schubrick acquired Anson's half-acre brewery and the following year joined it to an adjacent half-acre residential lot known as Petite Versailles. The Schubrick brothers identified this combined property in later deeds as the brewery or the brew house, but they did not advertise the sale of beer in local newspapers. Like the beer produced under the ownership of George Anson, the Schubricks probably sold their product to local mariners, most likely to the resident warship assigned to the Carolina station. A 1755 sale advertisement for this aging one-acre facility noted the presence of, quote, a dwelling house, brew house, and one large storehouse thereon, as also two large coppers set in brickwork in the brew house with coolers, vats, etc., for carrying on the brewery. The size of these copper vats is unknown, but they might have resembled the 150 gallon copper boiler advertised in contemporary newspapers. With such equipment in continuous operation, the proprietors certainly could have produced a commercial volume of beer. Thomas Gadsden, who worked closely with George Anson during his years on the Carolina Station and who occasionally supplied materials to the Royal Navy, might have erected the brewery on Bowling Green Plantation before he sold the property to Anson in 1727. 
documentary evidence of such activity has not been found, however, nor is there any other known documentary evidence of commercial brewing in Charleston before 1732. Beginning in that year, surviving issues of Charleston's first weekly newspaper indicate that the town hosted at least two commercial breweries operated by Daniel Bourget and William Morgan. Neither George Anson nor his agents ever advertised the sale of beer in the South Carolina Gazette, but Bourget, Morgan, and their successors did. Their advertisements demonstrate that local brewers, like their colleagues elsewhere, sold a graduated variety of products. In his first published notice, for example, Morgan advertised stout pale beer, strong brown beer, and table beer, which were intended, quote, either for sea or land, by wholesale or retail, end quote. A subsequent advertisement in 1733 specified only, quote, strong and table beer, both for sea and land, by wholesale, end quote. Similarly, Daniel Bourget advertised in 1735 the sale of, quote, strong, middling, and small beer, as usually, end quote. Such phrases, of course, reflect the Royal Navy's preference for strong beer at sea. These newspaper advertisements also suggest that the beer brewed commercially in Charleston during the middle decades of the 18th century included traditional ingredients. Following the death of brewer William Morgan, for example, the 1734 sale of his brew house on the north side of Trad Street included, quote, a parcel of malt, end quote. Samuel Holmes, Morgan's successor, advertised both the sale of fine pale beer and hops at his brewery. Similarly, Daniel Bourget advertised in 1735 that he had received fresh malt from an unidentified source. A later English brewer, Nathaniel Scott, pledged in 1752 to use only Carolina-grown barley and hops, quote, entirely free from any adulterations whatever, which are too common and very pernicious, end quote. But his operation apparently failed for want of sufficient supplies. Likewise, the Charleston Brewing Partnership of Edmund Egan and John Calvert struggled during the late 1760s and early 1770s because of supply chain issues. Although the volume of ship traffic from northern ports like Philadelphia then exceeded that of earlier generations, the inconsistent and insufficient flow of traditional grains retarded the growth of commercial-scale brewing in Charleston. The political disturbances preceding the American Revolution halted the flow of imported barley into the Palmetto City in 1774. In that year, an Englishman residing in Charleston reported to his colleagues at home that, quote, they make no beer of malt in Carolina, but they make some of molasses and also of persimmon, both of which are much inferior to good English beer, and, as it won't keep, is only made and expended in the winter season, but Charleston is very well supplied with porter from England at nine shillings per dozen bottles, which is commonly drank by most people of property at meals, or else weak grog or rum punch, end quote. George Anson, or agents in his employment utilizing enslaved labor, might have cultivated barley at his Bowling Green plantation in the 1720s and 1730s, but no records of such activity have survived. The property in question included nearly 64 acres of high ground and approximately 40 acres of marshland adjacent to the Cooper River. 
a plat created in 1745 for the initial subdivision of Anson's plantation into the residential neighborhood called Ansonboro demonstrates that the property included several distinct zones of agricultural activity. Most of the 39 acres of dry land bounded by modern King, Calhoun, Anson, and Society streets had been used for pasturage, while a grove of fruit-bearing Seville, or sour orange trees, occupied a strip of land along both sides of Society Street, between modern East Bay and Anson streets. The remaining highland, encompassing approximately 16 acres bounded by modern Calhoun, East Bay, Society, and Anson Streets, is labeled, quote-unquote, the farm in the 1745 plat, and was not subdivided for another decade. Surviving records do not specify how this farm was used during Anson's tenure, but it was probably used to cultivate agricultural products rather than horticultural ornaments. If Anson sowed his 16 acres with barley for use at his brewery, for example, it might have produced approximately one-half of the volume of beer required annually for the ship under his command. To produce a larger volume of beer, the captain would have had to purchase additional barley from other sources or turn to an alternative grain, like rice. The sale of South Carolina's forest products and salted meat to the British West Indies continued beyond the colonial era, but the volume of that trade was overshadowed by the export of rice during the early years of the 18th century. The export of commercial volumes of rice from the port of Charleston commenced in the late 1690s and by the mid-1720s surpassed the value of all exports from South Carolina. The dramatic increase of rice cultivation during the 1720s and 1730s, facilitated by the importation of larger numbers of enslaved Africans, transformed the landscape and character of South Carolina. That phenomenon also inspired local drinkers to experiment with using the cereal grain to brew alcoholic beverages. In the summer of 1722, for example, members of the South Carolina legislature sampled a spirit distilled from rough rice and resolved to offer a bounty to anyone who could produce it on a commercial scale. No one claimed the bounty, unfortunately, but it seems likely that at least some Carolinians produced rice liquor for their own consumption during the 18th century. Inhabitants of both town and country in South Carolina probably experimented with using rice to brew beer in the early 18th century, but little documentary evidence of such endeavors can now be found. While their efforts might have been limited to small batches brewed for home consumption, the ubiquity of rice consumption among all social classes of colonial South Carolina might have rendered its use in beer production so common that it did not merit commentary. I have found just one advertisement for the commercial sale of rice beer in local sources. In February 1744, one careless vulture of unknown origins advertised in the Charleston newspaper for the sale of, quote, good rice beer, either middling or small, end quote, at the house of a Swedish immigrant named Daniel Welshoisen. Whether Fulcher's brew represented an anomaly in the local beer market or a staple of Charleston taps is a matter for further investigation. We can distill all of the above-mentioned evidence down to five conclusions about the beer produced at George Anson's brewery during the second quarter of the 18th century. 
if Captain Anson's goal was to provide the volume of beer required by naval regulations for the crew of his warship, his brewery might have produced a volume in the neighborhood of 46,000 gallons per year. Because of the warm climate in the Charleston area, the resulting beverage would have been a top-fermented ale that matured in a relatively short period of time. It probably included some malted barley, but the precise proportion is unknown. Considering the volume of rice grown in this area during the 18th century and that grain's suitability for beer production, we can speculate that the recipe included a sizable proportion of rice. The captain's brewery also stood next to a fruitful orange grove, a fact that might have encouraged the brewer to add a dash of sour orange to give Anson's ale a tangy citrus flavor. The old brew house in Ansonboro is long gone, but the archival evidence related to its existence provides a valuable window into the role of beer in the culture and economy of colonial-era Charleston. If we consider that Captain Anson's brewery might have been operating during the late 1720s, after he purchased Thomas Gadsden's plantation, then he was the proprietor of the earliest known commercial-scale brewing operation in South Carolina. Craft breweries have become a familiar part of the Lowcountry landscape in the 21st century, and their tasty products are steeped in a rich tradition stretching back to Charleston's maritime roots. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.